Erev Tov, we're in Rabbi Yosef Kambach's introduction to the Mishneh Torah on page Chafhei 25. And whereas in the past we discussed different things that Rabbi Yosef Kambach wanted us to know before we learned the Rambam. So for example, why the Rambam wrote the Mishneh Torah? Why did the Rambam intentionally only mention things that Talmud codified? Was it the custom of the world to rule Halakha according to the Rambam? Did the Rambam intend to write a theoretical book or a practical work? Tonight we're going to be dealing with one of the main opponents of the Rambam, and that is the Ravad. The Ravad is an acronym that you'll see very often because even in the proper use of the word Ravad, there are many of them. In fact, the Ravad that we call the Ravad, or perhaps some call the Ravid, the Ravad is number three, Ravad HaShadishi. And just to get confused, he is the son-in-law of the Ravad HaShani, the second Ravad. And they are obviously related, but this acronym is very common because Ravad stands for Rabbi Abraham ben David. You can imagine how many uh, people with that acronym there are. As well as Ravad is used uh, in other contexts as the Rosh Av Din or Rosh Avod Batei Din, which is the supreme justice, the head of the rabbinic court, the head of the Bet Din. And therefore, sometimes you'll meet people and they'll say, oh, the Ravad says, you walk in Yerushalayim, for example, and you see one of these big signs, you're in or you are. The Ravad says, the Ravad says, and you wonder how could it be the Ravad said what they claim the Ravad to say? It doesn't make sense in the context. And then you realize they're not talking all about the Ravad, they're talking about their rabbi, who only they know which Ravad. They don't give him a last name, they don't give him a first name. You have no idea who they're talking about. When they say Ravad, they mean the rabbi who's sitting now in Borough Park or Williamsburg or Muncie or Lakewood or Chicago or wherever. That's who the Ravad is. It's very confusing. There are certain words that people tell you, oh, the Rebbe said. Which Rebbe? There are a lot of Rebbes. The people tell you, the Rosh Yeshiva said. Which Rosh Yeshiva? If you're in a Yeshiva and they tell you the Rosh Yeshiva said, that's fine. But if you're sitting around a Shabbat, it wasn't the Rosh Yeshiva. Which, which Rosh Yeshiva? You're saying, the Rav said. Which, which Rav? You know how many Rabbanim there are? Who are you referring to? That's why, you know, we have certain titles, like Rabbi Yudan Nasi in the Mishnah. Rabbeinu HaKadosh. We see the word Rabbeinu. We know in rabbinic literature it's referring to Rabbi Nasi. All of a sudden you see other people borrow this term Rabbeinu and they use it without any, anything that explains which Rabbeinu they're talking about. And now we have a problem. And the problem is that I have no idea who you're, who you're referring to. When you have someone like Maran. Maran is known as Maran. That's the title he was given. When I say Maran, I only mean one Maran. And it gets very confusing. Sometimes I read the books of Arav Adi Yosef. And he says, Maran Aben Ishchai, Maran Achida, Maran this, Maran that. Oh, Maran, 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 Maran. I don't know which Maran he's referring to. In fact, I'll tell you a story. Uh, once in the olden days of the yeshiva, where I studied, uh, before Harav Peretz, there was Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, who was the son of Rav Shalom, who was the son of Harav uh, Yosef. And once it happened that Harabad Yosef came to speak in the yeshiva, and Rav Peretz had to come in. I don't remember exactly the details of the story, but because already in Rabbi Yavad Yosef's lifetime, people were calling him Maran, Maran. In fact, in Israel today, when you say Maran, in, in modern Sephardic uh, Haredi society, they understand Maran is Rabbi Yavad Yosef. And when you say Maran, you don't know anymore which Maran they're talking about. It went backwards. And Rav Peretz, Ask permission. He said, listen, please, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, go to your father and tell him 
that I will call him any title in the world he needs. The crown of our head, the glory of our generation, the splendor of the whatever title. But Maran, I only call him Yosef Karumah. If he will not feel slighted by the fact that I don't call him Maran, I'm more than happy to come as the next thing. But if Chaz Shalom he'll feel offended, I don't want to offend Chavad Yosef, but I also can't, uh, I can't call someone else Maran if they're not actually Maran. What do you think Chalmud Yosef said? Of course, he did. Of course, he agreed. And our first came, and he named Matovu Manaim. Everything worked out. By the way, there's a. I once gave a shiur many years ago to our Monday morning class. It's probably time to read that piece again. My parents about titles, all kinds of titles that people give each other. Once our parents came to the Knesset. And when he entered the Berakneset, so he realized that by the Aliyah of Torah, you know, there's a minhag in some places. This was a Ashkenazi Yishtibol. And they had a minhag there, they called everybody Reb this, Ben Reb that, Ben Reb this one, the, this one, the son of that rabbi, that one. They used the word rabbi like an honorary title. You know, once I was in Bar Park with my wife, I walked to a store. And someone said, hey, Shalom Aleichem Rebbe. I said, wow, you know, like I got promoted now, and now I'm a Rebbe, I'm not just a rabbi. How did he know that I was a rabbi? And my wife was laughing, because in Bar Park, when they call you Rebbe, it's like, uh, they're making fun of you. It's like, um, what do you want, president? You know, you're not a president of anything, they're making fun of you. So Peres came to Bedeknesa, everybody was getting Aliyah, Rabbi this, the son of Rabbi that, Rabbi this, the son of Rabbi that. When it came his turn to get Aliyah, the guy was a racist. Didn't want to call him Rabbi, was Sephardic, didn't want to call him a rabbi. Did Yamod? I'm going to say, Yaakov ben Yosef. And our parents was full of tzah. He said, listen, I don't care. You call me a rabbi, no rabbi. It doesn't make a difference to me. But every Amharit in the Bidakadeset was called rabbi. Every Yigin there is a rabbi. It happens to be that because of who I am, because I'm not like you, you couldn't call me rabbi. This is Resha. The evil exists in the world. There's another kind of Resha. I opened up a book recently. It's some Moshe Shiva. I don't want to mention names. You probably wouldn't know him if I mentioned his name. And they have before his name an acronym. Rash Kabahag. Rash Kabahag. Rabban Shel Kol Bnei Hagola. The rabbi of all the Jews in the world. Literally of all the Jews in exile. I'm thinking to myself, he's the rabbi of all the Jews in the world, but perhaps 99.9% out of the 200 people in his yeshiva don't even know who he is. How could you call somebody Rash Kabahag? He wasn't even a, rash, he wasn't even a rabbi of his own community, let alone a rabbi of the whole world. People are exaggerating these things. This had nothing to do with what Rav Kapach wanted to tell us. It do with titles. Once, Rav Kuk, Rav Shalom, was sitting Shiva for his mother. And someone came and had a conversation. He said, you know what he was mitzvah? You know what made him suffer the most? He said, of all the titles he was called in his lifetime, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv Yafo, the chief rabbi of Israel, the chief of everyone, everything was fine and special, but there was only one title he's never going to hear again. The title that his mother would call him Bni, my son. He said, that title, there's no one in the world who can give me that title. And he felt like when he had lost his mother, he had lost the only real title he actually cherished. The title of my son. To have parents. Those of us who have parents, they should live in Bivu. It's brought down in the name of Rabbi Menachem Azariah, we say for some reason the Bede Melashmi Pano, but really it's a place, the Fano, in Italy, uh, in uh, France. In Italy. Rabbi is from France. In Siman Kufret, on page 108 
if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Aryeh de Modina, who wrote the famous book, Ari Nohem, infamous, I guess, for those who are on the other side of the argument, uh, I believe he's somehow connected to the Ramah Mipano. I don't remember how. Shekadav, he writes the following. Chas v'shalom l'ha'alot al hadat. God forbid that it should even enter your mind. Ki ha'kadosh ha'ra'avad, ha'ra'avad, holy ra'avad. Kiven chalila lemaet b'chvod ha'rambam. That he had some intention to diminish from the honor of the Rambam. Rather, he stretched out his holy arm to argue with the Rambam in a number of halachic places. Why did he argue with the Rambam? Fascinating reason. And those who read the articles that I've suggested until today will understand. The reason why the Ravad argued with Rambam is because he wanted to make sure that people wouldn't become uh, followers of the Rambam and Chaz Shalom follow him uh, to, to become spoiled, to become rotten, to be led astray by the Rambam to his book, the Moren Vuchim. So the reason why Ravad argues with the Rambam is to save people from following the Rambam to the Moren Vuchim. He says, look what the Ravad himself writes in the laws of forbidden mixtures. Where he says, look, this undertaking of the Rambam was tremendous. So from here says the Rambam Mipano, you see that really the Ravad respected the Rambam tremendously. He just wanted to critique him so people wouldn't follow him blindly and ultimately, God forbid, sarcastically, God forbid end up in the realm of the Moren Nebuchim. Ayin Sham, look there. Says Rabbi Yosef Kapach, These words, in my opinion, have no foundation. There's no basis for this, this uh, claim. The Rabbeinu HaRavad didn't even see the book, the holy book he calls it, of the Moreh Nebuchim. Ki Sefer Moreh HaNebuchim nikhtav b'savah Aravid. Because the book, Moreh Nebuchim, was written in Arabic. The Ravad, and the Ravad was from France. Lo yada Aravid, didn't know Arabic. V'tirgumo l'avrit, and maybe he read it in Hebrew, was translated. The translation in Hebrew happened in which year? Al-Diday Rabbi Shemuel ibn Tibon, by Rabbi Shemuel ibn Tibon, nistayem b'shnat, it was finished in the year, translated for us, 1204. So Rabbi Shemuel ibn Tibon translated the Moren Vuchim into Hebrew in 1204. b'shnat, and the Ravad died in the year, in our years, 1198. The Ravad died five years before the Moren Vuchim was even translated into uh, Hebrew. So there was no way, aside from the fact that it had no foundation, here's a proof against it. The Ravad didn't know about the Moren Vuchim in order to be worried that people should follow it. In the Ravad's lifetime, Moren Vuchim was only written in Arabic. And he had no access to Arabic because he was a French rabbi. 
And if you go look here, you should know here from many of these books there, that we're going to quote now, there are a number of uh, uh, names. And I'm guessing which one of the, their books like Shevet Miudah. There are a number of Shevet Miudah in histories. I'm assuming that the Shevet Miudah that I'm referring to is the Shevet Miudah that Yosef Kapach is referring to. And Shevet Miudah of Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Verga, who was in Spain. You'll find that there's an introduction there from Professor Shmuel Atlas of Blessed Memory, the Pirush Baba Kama Shlaravad, and the commentary Baba Kama of the Ravad. So the Ravad also wrote commentaries on the Talmud. He says there are wondrous words, malef, like a, a magnificent, breathtaking words that were written by Professor Shmuel Atlas. Uh, if you run a cursory search on Professor Shmuel Aldis, you'll find he was born in Lithuania, I believe right before the turn of 1899. Um, he studied in Lithuania, in Russia, and a number of different places. Ended up in America at the Hebrew Union College, like many of the rabbis who came from Europe and came here, and ended up in different institutions than you might expect them to. I don't know anything about him. I don't know to recommend, not recommend, simply I know that he was a friend of Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, the Sili Daesh. You'll find letters, correspondences between the two of them. And it's enough of a wondrous introduction that Rabbi Yosef Kapach writes amazing things about it. And it is correct though that Rabbeinu HaRambam saw the critiques of the Ravad in his book. But the Rambam in his lifetime never directly dealt with the Ravad's critiques on his work. As was the Rambam's custom, that was his way. Like the famous letter that you find from Rabbam to Rabbi Yosef ben Yehuda. I once translated parts of it to English. And I am thinking that depending on what we do this week, it's possible that it's, it's important for us to read this letter ourselves. It's mentioned in the letters of the Rambam in, in Rav Kapach's edition. There are many different editions of the Rambam's letters. A number of them. And there unfortunately are many letters that are attributed to the Rambam that are forgeries. And different Chachamim argue which of those letters are forgeries, which of them are not, which are accurate, which have maybe problems with them, maybe the translations were off, some of them were missing the Arabic original, we only have the Hebrew translation, we have to guess uh, what the Rambam actually intended. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Kapach published only a few letters of the Rambam that he was certain came from the Rambam himself, and all the other letters that Rabbi Yosef Kapach deviated from, uh, strayed from, uh, was wary of translating them or, or even compiling them into a book because they most likely were not from the Rambam in his estimation. It appears to me the intention of the Ravad in his critiques is not to argue with the Rambam. It's not even to show the Ravad's personal opinion on any matter. This is... Uh, groundbreaking understanding of the Ravad. Until today, most people would understand the Ravad, especially when he writes very sharp things about the Rambam, we understand him as being critical, as uh, saying some pretty terrible things about the Rambam. He says, not only is he not arguing with the Rambam, he doesn't even intend to bring his own opinion into the question, into the conversation. The whole intention of the Ravad's critique is to show the readers of the Rambam's books miyad immediately in that place. Sheesh od de'a cholekat al-ha'amur ba'sefer 
that there is another opinion that argues with the Rambams. Shelo yachashov, you should not think ki adavarim asidurim lefanav hem muskamim lidivrei akol. The things that are written in front of the Rambam, like they're clear, like that's the law, that everyone agrees. Meaning, the Ravad is telling you, hey, stop, wait. The Rambam makes it seem this is simple. It's not so simple. There are others who differ. And the Ravad is not even there to tell you, does he hold like the Rambam? Does he not? It doesn't make a difference. The Ravad is not writing a work of halakha. He's trying to say, hey, don't read the Rambam blindly. Read the Rambam with the critiques of the Ravad. Make sure that you know in which place the Rambam is saying that something is a clear halakha, and maybe it's not so clear. What throws people off? What throws people off is that the way of the Ravad is to speak very harshly. I remember we mentioned a few shilim ago, we read from the introduction of the Ravad, and the thing he said about the Rambam, who does this man think he is that he's better than everybody else? So, but if you examine closely the things that he writes against the Rambam, even the things that sound personal or offensive, Meupakim him, they're 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 so light, they're so diminished. Meod If you put them in context of the things he wrote about other rabbis, he wrote nothing bad about the Rambam. The things he said about the Rambam were perfectly fine. There was a Balamao, Benuzachia Halevi. He wrote a book arguing with Arif. And the Ravad, who I, may, I believe may even have been in some kind of uh, acquaintance with uh, the Balamo, I don't know. What he writes about the Raza and the things he writes about him, protecting the Rif from the, from the Balamo. Hashem Mishma, what you read over there. So if you put it in the context of what the Ravad wrote about other rabbis, he really loves the Ramah. But why did he write in such an inflammatory fashion? The man was very wealthy, says Rav Kappach. He was very great in Torah knowledge. And he had hundreds of students that admired him, adored him, that surrounded him. And these cause for a very healthy self-esteem inside of a person. A person has a lot of money, they know a lot of Torah, they have a lot of admirers. That is a recipe for a lot of uh, self-respect, self-dignity. And look in the Ravad's letters. Who printed the Ravad's letters? Harav Kapach. If I'm not mistaken, Harav Kapach even printed books from the Ravad before he printed books from the Rambam. That I don't remember though. Harav Kapach goes to print the opponent of the Rambam's letters because Harav Kapach really believes that the Ravad was not an opponent of the Rambam. He was doing a service to the learner, the reader of the Rambam, to know when the Ravad, in the Beda Midrash, not everyone accepts that this is the way the Ravad was writing, but Harav Kapach's world, uh, opinion definitely brings a lot of peace to the world. Talmidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, Marbim Shalom Ba'olam, increase peace in the world. This is a classic example of that. If you look at Rav Kapach's edition of Ravad's letters in section 20, over there the Ravad discusses a halakha. And in that halakha, he's forced to disclose the reason for a halakha. So he gave a ruling, and now he had to, to share what the reason was. Katav, he writes the following words. Listen to the way the Ravad speaks. 
I'm going to reveal my secret, the reason behind this ruling. To be a proof for those who come after me. Especially if they're going to be those people who are going to accept my words without any research and without any analysis of their own. Because my years are greater than theirs, meaning I'm older than them. And my wisdom is greater than theirs also. Meaning there are people who will accept my words because I'm older than them and I'm wiser than them. Oftentimes people have a hard time. In Judaism, especially of today, there's a certain understanding of midot, certain character traits. I was studying there with my wife on Shabbat, Perkeavot of the Rambam. But the commentary of the Rambam Perkeavot. And when the Rambam discusses the obligation to judge people favorably, or the lack thereof. And we hear always, judge everyone favorably, judge everyone favorably, judge everyone favorably. There are times though where according to Halakha, you have no obligation to judge someone favorably. There are times where according to Halakha, it's crazy to judge someone favorably, but you have to. We're always taught that you must do everything you can to justify a person to judge them favorably. And it seems unrealistic. It seems the Torah wants you to live in some stupid world. But if you truly understand the writings of the Chachamim, you'll realize that no. You don't have an obligation to judge everyone favorably. There are limits. Before you go to bed tonight, people are going to say a blessing on the Shema. And before then, I know, they say all kinds of tefillot. I forgive all the people who hurt me. They don't want to say this prayer. Why? There are people that I don't forgive. Why? They hurt me very much. The business partner who stole from me, the person who hurt me, abused me. You think that you have to forgive everybody in your life? You have an obligation to forgive everyone. Do you have an obligation to forgive somebody who hurt you and never asked you for mechilah? Maybe for you it's good. But on a halachic level, do you have an obligation to forgive them? We have Western concepts in our head. The Torah's concept of humility, anava, the way I received it from my rabbis, is not that it's, and you know, someone compliments you, you're such a good uh, uh, speaker, you're such a good artist, you're such a good painter, you're such a good musician, whatever it is you are. And you say, no, what do you say in the West? Yeah, no, it's not nothing. It's not a big deal. Nothing at all. I'm not so special. You deny it. Why do you deny it? Because you don't want to come off looking like you're an arrogant person. The one Hamamin Bashem, the person who believes in the Baruch Hu. Who made you the great artist? Who made you the great speaker? Who made you the great musician? The creator of the universe made you that person. So now someone says, wow, I'm recognizing the God-given talents inside of you. And what do you tell them? Nah, Hashem didn't give me anything. You are a kfui tova. You are one who has no gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Rather, what should you answer according to Judaism, not according to the street? You should say, thank you very much. I am a wonderful artist. Thank you, Hashem. It's all from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yeah, I am a beautiful musician. Thank you. But it's all because of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Don't take credit for it. It's not yours. Give gratitude to the one who gave the gift to you. That's anava. As soon as you see people, they write things. Wow, how can he say he's wise? In the West, you can't say you're wise. But in Am Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu writes in the Torah that Moshe is anav mikol adam. Moshe is more humble. Okay, HaKadosh Baruch told him to write it? What a humble person. He says, ah, Hashem, I don't want to write it. And Amma, he was so humble 
that he was able to write that he, he really truly was the most humble person on earth. Moshe Rabbeinu was also a truthful person. They tell a story. I don't want to mention names. I'm not even sure the story is true. But the idea behind the story is true. There was a certain Tamil Chacham that was asked to take a stand as a witness, a character witness for a person here in the United States. And when he got on the witness stand, they asked him, so who are you that we should be listening to your opinion? And he said, me? I'm the greatest rabbi in the generation. And his students were, you know, come on. He's the greatest rabbi in the generation? What, what kind of person said such a thing? And afterwards they came to tell him, he said, listen, I went on the stage. I went on the stand. I took an oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. I never walk around the whole life, ah, I'm the greatest rapper in the generation, look at me, look how great I am. But when I took an oath to tell the truth, what do you want me to lie? You have to have an, what does the Mishnah and Pekeh say? One of the ways to acquire Torah, to know your place. To know your place means, when you're sitting in front of a medical professional, don't talk about medicine if you don't know anything about it. When you're sitting in front of a Tamichacham and you know nothing about Torah, don't tell them how to think about the Torah. But the other way is true also. When you're a lawyer and you see someone's getting hurt and you know the law could protect them, you have an obligation, yes, to speak. I am the lawyer in the room. When you're on an airplane and someone is having a heart attack, are there any doctors in the room? Don't be humble and say, nah, I'm not really a doctor. Now is the time you have to stop. I am a doctor. Of course I'm a doctor. The Ravad is writing truth, at least in the reality in which the Ravad lives. For his Talmidim, he's older than them and he's wiser than them. It shouldn't throw you off when you see Chachamim speak like this. It will, but it shouldn't. He says, I'm going to write the reason for this halacha. Because there really is a reason. There's a purpose. That other people will be able to understand the logic behind it. I also want to save them from the, the lashing tongues that will critique them. This is a quote from Yeshayahu, we mentioned it before. They're going to tell a father, who have you been given birth to, to a woman, who are you carrying? There are some people that are only wise in their own eyes and they're so great, they're so smart for anybody else. I've decided to reveal the secret of this halakha and to tell you the reason, the basis of this halakha. Look there. And the same intent of the Ravad. To show that the opinion of Rabbeinu HaRambam is not the only opinion. There are other opinions. There are other logical ways to examine this halakha and therefore you need to know them. This is the Rabbi Yosef Kabak. You think I'm stopping with the Ravad? Rabbi Moshe Akohen, Rabbi Moshe, uh, Rabbi Meir Akohen of Rottenburg, the famous Hagod Mamilut, the Maharami Rottenburg. We mentioned him the other day. Where do we mention him? We also spoke about his Hasagot. We mentioned him on page Chaf Aleph. Rabbi Meir Akohen from Rottenburg, he was a rabbi, a French German rabbi. When he critiques the Rambam, also for the same reason. Not because he's giving you a halachic opinion. 
נאמרו בעידון ובעדינות בשפה שונה וברוח אחרת. The only difference between the Maram of Ronenberg and the Ravad is that his words were said gently, much more pleasantly. They were said uh, with a little more grace. Lokim Mesig, not like a, crit, uh, uh, um, a critic, Elakim Megid, just someone who's sharing information. Achamatara Achati, but he has the same intention as the Ravad. The intention is to show the reader of the Rambam, slow down, the Rambam is not giving the only halachic opinion available. There are other opinions you need to know about. What do you do with that information is up to you. But you must know what to do with the Rambam's teachings and the Ravad's critiques. Kapitzak, do I have time to do one more paragraph? What, how many minutes am I in the record? Okay, we'll do a little bit longer today. Because this is true, the Ravad did not intend at all to write his halachic opinion at all. And now, which the poskim debate, it's every place where the Ravad omitted. He didn't say anything. He was silent. Does that mean that the Ravad agrees with the Rambam? And therefore, whenever the Ravad is silent and the Rambam says something, it means two great rabbis agreed to it. The Rambam and the silent critic who's back there who's not saying anything, the Ravad, because clearly he agrees. Olav, or maybe not. Can we learn anything from the silence of the Ravad? This is very important. First of all, in the Gemara you have uh, from one way you can infer some, the opposite. When you're reading a, uh, I'm borrowing the term, when you read a critique of someone, you're reading the, the Ramah's notes on Maran, the Shulchan Aruch. Whenever the Ramah doesn't argue, it's accepted by the Poskim, that means because he agrees with Maran. And therefore, in the Halakha, where Maran says X and the Ramah does not argue, then you can say the Maran and the Ramah say X, Y, and Z. Why? Because they didn't, he didn't argue and therefore they agree. Can you do the same thing with the Ravad? This is important in many areas of Halakha. Recently I was looking up a, a question in Yichot Tarat HaMishpacha. We had a complicated question that came up uh, in the Ben Midrash. And the famous question of the Rif, Harid the Rif, didn't give us a complete work on these laws. And therefore, when there are some people who say, well, he omitted a halakha. His omission of a halakha does not necessarily mean that he didn't believe in that halakha. Rather, he didn't write a book on that topic. And therefore, his omission means nothing. Others say, no, he omitted a halakha, and therefore he agrees with what everyone else is saying. This is an important point. Says Arav Kapach. Look, Stechem is an important work. I don't own a set. Halavai on me one day, I will own a set. It's a Jewish encyclopedia. Linera, it appears to me, she'en lachshov oto kemaskim b'mokom shatak. It appears to me that you should never consider the Ravad as agreeing when he's silent. V'lo kecholek b'mokom sh'yisig. And the same holds true that wherever the Ravad argues, don't think he's actually arguing. Meaning, don't understand yes from his silence and don't understand no from his uh, voice. Rather, אלא כאמור כמגלה למעיין מציאות דעה אחרת. All he's trying to do is to show the reader there is another reality, there is another opinion. ואין לחשוב 
בדברי הראב"ד כדעתו וכהכרעתו, הוא אלא מה שכתב בתשובותיו, שאין הלכה למעשה, ובחידושיו לש"ס. The only place you can find the Ravad's opinion, what does he actually believe the halakha is? In his book of halakha, in his letters, and in his commentary on the Talmud. Not when he critiques Rabbeinu Rambam. Not when he critiques Rabbeinu Zarqa Halavi. Not when he critiques someone else. The Ravad in his critique is always playing devil's advocate. That sounds crazy. Could it really be? I already wrote in my introduction to the Ravad's questions and answers. There are many things the Ravad held the halakha. That was his opinion on the halakha in his books. But if you look in the Mishneh Torah, he doesn't argue with the Rambam. Because the Ravad is not coming to show personal opinion in his critique of the Rambam. Go look again at the introduction that we mentioned before from Rabbi Shmuel Atlas. What he writes there in his uh, introduction to Masechet Bavakama. שם, over there, he said he shows there are many contradictions between what the Ravad holds the Halakha in his books and what he critiques the Rambam on. And rather his solution, Rabbi Atlas's solution was that where the Ravad changes his mind, it's because he really took back his previous opinion. So what he writes now is his current opinion, and what he wrote previously is not his real opinion. Meaning he took it back. That's why he changed opinions. We have some works like that. And unlike of Kapach who says that from his silence you can't infer anything because he didn't, just didn't critique because it wasn't another opinion that argued. But it appears to me that's not the truth. Because if that was true that the Ravad took back his opinion, he would erase the things that he argued with the Rambam about. Then maybe he couldn't uh, edit the books that he already published. <clears throat> but in the next printing, in the next edition, he would have found two different versions of the Ravad. The version of the Ravad, <clears throat> the handwritten manuscript with the eraser remarks, or the handwritten manuscript where he crossed something out. <laughs> we never found such manuscripts. Therefore, it appears to me clearly that in the Ravad's critiques, he does not intend to share his personal opinion. And look at the writings of Avnei Shoham, Rabbi Abraham ben Yaakov Peretz, who writes, The Ravad basagato bichot chametz, that the Ravad, in this way, he looks at the same topic, and in this area he was looking at it from this angle, and he critiqued. And over there he looked at it from a different angle, and he critiqued. But it's not consistent. The Ravad was simply playing devil's advocate. He was playing on the other side. He was always opposing, just to show you that if I'm standing from this angle, there's a question. Then if I'm standing from that angle, it's a different question. And you can't draw a line between what the Ravad writes and all of his critiques uh, throughout the Rambam. In the laws of Shofar, Shofar If you look regarding a stolen Shofar and a stolen Sukkah, that his critiques, they contradict each other. But it doesn't make a difference, because he's not trying to be consistent. Look at the writings of Rabbi Yitzchak ben Moshe Nunez, ben Amonte, that was his last name. He writes in the laws of Yom Tov, 
that when he critiques the Baal HaMe'or, Rabbi Zerachai Levi, it seems like he holds like the Rambam and the Rif. The Hacha, but over here in the writings of the Rambam, Mesik Rabbeinu, he's arguing with the Rambam. So how can on the same topic he take the Rambam's stance over there, but now when it comes to the Rambam, he takes the opposite stance? The only answer is the way Rav Kapach answered. That in each book, he's trying to show the reader there are other opinions here. Look at Rabbi Yaakov Al-Beli. That he argues based on what the Rambam wrote in Lazar Brachot. Look over there. And look in the tour and see how he quotes it. Basically, based on all of the above, that whenever you see a writing of the Ravad critiquing someone, don't consider the Halakha at all. And never consider his silence to the Rambam or his silence to Rabbeinu Zachai Levi to be uh, in agreement. And don't look at whenever he argues that he's arguing. He's only a, a giving a note. To wake up the heart of the one who's reading. That there is another opinion. There exists another opinion. And he can therefore go and do his own research and figure out who the halakha is like. And maybe, again, Yosef Kav is being a little sarcastic, maybe he's that one special person in the generation that Maran the Kesav Mishneh made who's able to study the halachot on his own and reach different conclusions of the Rambam. But don't think, says Rabbi Yosef Kapak, that this is some new invention of the Ravad, that he is the only rabbi who ever writes critiques as a, as a, just, just to show you other opinions. This is an old road. Many people have gone down this road. And the great rabbis of the Jewish people, they conquered this path already. This seems to be a reference to a Gemara. The Gemara says about uh, Rabbi Yochanan, I believe Rabbi Yochanan, that he was, he said he learned from a young girl, he learned from her that one shouldn't steal. He said he was once walking in, the, in a field and this girl asked him, Rabbi, are you not walking in private property? He says, yeah, it's private property. So why are you walking in it? Someone's field. I'm walking in it. Look, so many people walk here, it's already become a public road. There's nothing growing here. I'm not breaking anybody's plans. So what should she answer him? Rabbi, Robbers like you are the ones who made this into a public road. Meaning just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it an excuse. So what if everyone's doing it? You're part of those people that turn one man's private property into public property because of your disregard for his personal property. Once when I was in Baltimore, there's a lot of grass. On the East Coast, they have a lot of water. They don't pay money for sprinklers for the grass. There's this huge uh, field of grass, and there was a trail, you know, like a, a cement sidewalk you can walk on. Somebody walked in the grass. And there was an old Tamikham who was visiting the yeshiva. I won't mention his name. And he looked at some of these yeshivas too. I remember him screaming. He said, is this the way uh, Tamikham walks? There's a road and he chooses to walk in the, in the grass. 
walk on the road. And I'm sure there are many messages you could take out of there. The first being, why you ruin the grass? Why ruin the flowers? People have worked hard for their garden. You walk to someone's house. You walk through their front yard. You ruin the plants they planted. There's a path for a reason. Ah, it's too many steps out of your way. A little bit of human decency wouldn't hurt a person. To read and think about it, when I should start thinking about it. Chachamim say that a person's money should be chaviva lechakishalcha. Someone else's property should be as important to you as your own. I once told this to somebody. He said, Rabbi, I don't even care about my own property. Okay, so that's a bad midah. It's a bad midah. Because you don't care about your own property, you don't care about other people's property either. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that you don't care about your own property either. Remember the great forefather who goes back to for the little things he left behind. Pachim ktanim. Little jugs. Because it's important. Somebody once said, I take this Musa for myself also. Somebody said, all of that junk in your house used to once be money. All of those things you throw to the trash, the toys that are broken, the, the things you bought at Costco once, all of those things you ordered on Amazon, you bought the wrong piece in Home Depot, you never returned, all of those things that you have in your house, they used to be dollar bills. And now you're throwing them to the trash. To care a little bit about your own property is a good midah. But to care about other people's property, let's say you don't care about your own, at the very least care about theirs. There are people who are afraid to lend people things. I once lent somebody a book. I got back the book. I lent them a hardcover. I got it back a softcover book. And, and I even was able, I needed to do binding again on the book. You lend somebody chairs or tables for a wedding, for a sheva brachot, for a bar mitzvah, whatever you lend it for. And you get back half your chairs and the table is broken. What did you do? So you already had your wedding, so you don't need to care. The next simcha is going to be 20 years but you ruined it for everybody else. The next person who's doing an event, that bring me that. The next person who needs to borrow those chairs, the host will say, I'm sorry, I don't want to lend my things out. When I lend my things out, they get broke. There's another message you can learn from that story about the grass. This whole methodology of arguing not for the sake of proving someone wrong. And not even because you disagree with what's being written. Rather, you're trying to share the other side of the story. So you can actually reach the proper conclusion. If you look in the commentary of Rabbeinu Arambam, Amar Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Ishmael was arguing halakha with me. There, Rabbi Haramam writes in his commentary, He was arguing with Rabbi Akiva, not because he disagreed with Rabbi Akiva, but because he wanted to argue. He wanted that back and forth to clarify the matter. The Modurati Look at my uh, uh, printing over there, because in the printed edition, there was a mistake. Look at Masechet Eruvin. It's revealed in front of him who created the world. There's no one in Rabbi Meir's generation who is like him. And 
And for what reason did they not rule halacha like Rabbi Meir? Because his friends, his chavrutot, they were unable to to truly understand his opinion. Because Zerbi Meir would show something that was impure, and he would say, no, it's pure. And he would prove, he would prove to you that it's okay. He would show you that something which is tahor, pure, he would tell you it's impure, and he would prove to you that it's that way. Chachamim say, There are 150 ways to convince a person in halacha that an insect is kasher. Atamit Chacham can give you 50 logical reasons for why something is permitted, and for the same exact thing, give you 50 logical reasons why it's prohibited. Ultimately, you have to come to the truth. The truth requires more than just being able to argue your point. You see this a lot today in the conversation. You know how rare it is for me to have a good conversation with someone? Here in my Hashem, we have beautiful conversations. But sometimes a person will come from outside, or will go somewhere for Shabbat, or will visit a different country, whatever it is, and you sit with the person, and they have a conversation. It doesn't have to be about Torah. You want to be about politics, you want to be about life, you want to be about marriage, about kids, whatever it is. And there's fun in having a healthy debate. But this person doesn't know how to debate. This person gets angry and they get worked up and they curse at you. But a person, I mean, what happened? What happened? All I'm trying to do is to get you to think differently than the way you were thinking until now. If you can't prove my point, then you don't truly understand your point. If you can't argue for the other side, you don't know what they're actually saying. Maybe I'll say it better. Not if you can't argue for the other side. If you can't convincingly argue for the other side. I'm ruling like Maran and Halakha. If I can't convincingly prove the Ramah is correct, I have no right to rule like Maran. You don't know why the Ramah said what he said. How can you rule the Ramah? You have to understand the opposite side of the story. Tamilei Chamim have been doing this forever. This was the way of the sharp Chachamim of the Jewish people. We drink their waters. And this was the path on which the Ravad tread, according to my opinion, says Rav Kapach. Especially when it has to do with Rambam. And he didn't intend at all to come and establish Halakha. I think it's very important what we said tonight. And I know the shield was longer than what I intended to be. There is value to conversation in the Bidim Midrash. People sometimes come to a shield. Today I had a question. Someone asked me a halakha question. And I started explaining to them. The Torah says like this. There's a Rambam. There's Shulchan Aruch. The Gemara, there's two different ways to read it. And therefore the poskim discussed differently. And you see the person glazed over. They're used to calling a rabbi. They want to ask a question. Tell me what to do. That's what I'm going to ask. Don't explain this to me. Don't help me understand it. Tell me what to do. Tell you what to do. What's the purpose of telling you what to do? If you want to be a robot, I can just give you a I guess that's what some books are written for. Do this. Don't do that. Don't do... What about understanding what you're doing? What about the goal to truly comprehend the actions that you take? See that for some people it's not important. 
For some people, it's not relevant. For some people, they go on with this, this a certain cognitive dissonance in their life. They do something, they believe something else. They, their whole life is chaos. Someone asked the question in the Pesach forum. Do you remember on our Q&A? And they asked the purpose of having a rabbi. Which rabbi should I follow? Following a rabbi. And I mentioned there, the Mishnah says, Make for yourself a rabbi. The Rambam there in the commentary writes, Make for yourself a rabbi. We don't follow people. What's are following a rabbi? Rather, what does it mean make for yourself a rabbi? When you have a matter of halakha, you want to know, go and have someone to discuss halakha with. You don't know what to do? Go discuss it with someone, even if you know what to do. Even a great tamichicham. The Rambam says, you find someone who's not as great as him. But at least you should have somebody to discuss with before you make a decision, an important decision. Talk it out with somebody. Think it through with somebody. Sometimes the person who's sitting opposite from you doesn't have to be a tremendous tamichicham. But they see things from an objective angle. They see things that you can't see because you're blind to it. It's not embarrassing to reach out to someone. It's not embarrassing to think through your actions. And Chachamei Israel for generations have pushed us. Before you do things, think about them. Use your mind. Use your brain. Because we'll give you a gift. What differentiates between you and a monkey is the intellect that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you. The ability to think before you eat the banana. The ability to make a bracha before you eat a banana. The ability to have a conversation like we've had here before. Which bracha do you make on a banana in the first place? Why do some people make a hadama and banana? Why? It grows on a tree. Why? Do you believe the stories they told you in elementary school? It's a heavy fruit. It touches the ground. You believe these stories still? The way you ate your food when you were 2 years old shouldn't be the way you eat your food when you're 25 years old, when you're 35, when you're 45, when you're 105. You have to rethink, you re-examine issues, to learn, to push yourself. The purpose of the Ravad is like a great educator. Whenever you're reading and he feels you're getting too comfortable, you're just following. The Ravad taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, don't turn off your brain. Don't turn off your intellect. Don't stop thinking. Don't stop questioning. Don't stop challenging. And even if you ultimately will follow the Rambam, it will be not because the Rambam said so, but because you had the opportunity to go and look into these things for yourself. To make an analysis, your own analysis. You reach the same conclusion? Perfect. But this time you've made an educated choice. This is the beauty of the Torah. Not to decide things for people, but to educate people so that they can make the correct decisions on their own. Bezad Hashem, we'll continue tomorrow. I believe that the Tomorrow, Shi'u, with your permission, now that I'm speaking about all this, this reminds me a lot, it's a tangent, obviously, of Ha'avad Yosef, Adam Shalom. I know I'm not from his better Midrash, but the, the fights that he had within the Sephardic community to try to share an opinion that was different than what they were used to hearing, and his personal struggles, and the rabbis that went out against him, and the rabbis that he then persecuted afterwards, and the apologies, and the lack of apologies, and the conversations... I feel like tomorrow I'm going to post a few PDFs to our Google Classroom. And tomorrow, instead of Arambam Shiu, we're going to continue this thought of thinking critically within the spirit of Arambam through the writings of Rabbi Bari Yosef.